1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by brilliant author, author Dennis Rasmussen, who has um, written an excellent book, The Constitution's Penman, Governor Morris and the Creation of America's Basic Charter. Um, this is published in 2023 by the University Press of Kansas as part of the American Political Thought series. It's a very good book. I had a great time reading it. Um, I'd always been a bit of a fan of Governor Morris, and so I was very appreciative, Dennis, of your, your penning of this great book about America's, the Constitution's penman. Um, but I wanted to invite you on board um, and ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this
3: project about
2: Governor Morris.
3: First of all, thanks, Lily. It's good to be back with you again. This is our second conversation for this series. We talked about my, my first book um, on the, the American founders a few years ago. It's called Fears of a Setting Sun. It's about the disillusionment of some of the more famous founders, above all, Washington, Hamilton, Adams, and Jefferson, um, and in the course of writing that book, you know, Morris came into play here and there. He's Hamilton's best friend. Um, he he uh, served an important role for, for Washington as well. Um, and he was sort of an enemy to Jefferson. And so I sort of got to know him a little bit as I worked on that project. And every time he came up, he just seemed so interesting and colorful and funny that I thought, wow, I should really get to know this guy more. Um, there have been some recent biographies of Morris, four in the past, you know, decade or so. Um, but there had never been a book exploring his, what I'm calling his constitutional vision in a systematic way. So I, I um, you know, I kind of came to Morris through the, the last book, I guess.
2: And and you're taking up this um, role that Morris has. is First of all, you, you have this long discussion about, like, why nobody knows who cooper and Morris is, which I also found to be really interesting because um, he's not Jefferson. He didn't write the declaration of independence. Um, and, you know, he's not Madison. He is not, Father of the Constitution, um, and yet he has like a very interesting life. He's you know a ladies' man and and he's wealthy um, and so forth. And few people know about him. Um, and so, in coming to this discussion of his constitutional vision, you also provide a pretty good biography of him. Can you talk a little bit about? This this person who was vital to the Constitution and yet not as well known as the big six.
3: Absolutely, I would be thrilled to. Um, I, I love talking about Morris, um, so I'll leave his his impact on the Constitution maybe for for a later question. Let me just talk about the guy for a minute because he's I think quite possibly the most interesting of the founders' period. Um, one scholar recently said that he may have been the most colorful individual in all of North America at the time of the founding, and that you know sounds about right to me, so he's. Um, This peg-legged ladies' man has a really wicked, sardonic sense of humor. He's, I think, pretty clearly the, the funniest or at least one of the funniest founders. Um, that's not a super high bar. I think they're a pretty serious lot. And, you know, maybe Franklin's the only real rival for that that title. But, uh, well, John Adams had his moments, too. But I think Morris and Franklin had had the best senses of humor. Um, so I mentioned that Morris had a wooden leg. So he lost his leg or had his leg amputated when he was 28 as a result, probably of a bad carriage accident, although there was always kind of rumors Floating around him throughout his life, that he'd in fact shattered the leg jumping out a bedroom window to escape the wrath of an ill-timed husband. So he was uh, his peg leg doesn't seem to have dampened women's interest in him at least. He went on to to engage in a long string of amorous adventures across two continents. Um, But maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me let me start a little bit from the beginning and try to give a more. Uh, coherent overview of his life. So he's originally from New York. He, as you said, he's wealthy. He came from a wealthy family that owned most of the southwest part of what's now the Bronx. Um, Although that said, he wasn't, his father died when he was 10 and the bulk of the inheritance went to his older half siblings from his father's first wife, and so he's left to more or less make his own way in the world, despite his quasi-aristocratic lineage, and he did that very well. He was always extremely good at making money. Um, Both He worked as a lawyer, especially through land speculation, But he came up or came to to public prominence, as as so many of the founders did, through revolutionary politics. So he helped to push, well, eventually push New York uh, to join the independence movement um, as a member of the state's provincial Congress. He was one of the three principal architects of the New York state constitution, along with two of his good friends, John Jay and Robert R. Livingston, He worked at the Continental Congress, where he, uh, among other things, spent the terrible winter at Valley Forge. He was part of a committee to oversee the Army's needs. There, he got to meet George Washington, who would go on to become uh, his friend, and I don't think it's too strong to say Morris' lifelong political hero, um, which is an interesting, I mean, they're a sort of odd pair, right? You have Washington's very uh, kind of dignified reserve, whereas Morris had this irrepressible boldness and rakishness and so on. But they do, I, I think they got along quite well. Um, he also signed the Articles of Confederation as uh, uh, the, the first, America's first stab at a national constitution um, as a member of the the Continental Congress on behalf of New York, although he always saw the Confederation as ultimately way, way too weak, woefully inadequate from the get-go. Um, he served for a, a few years, starting in 1781, as the the Confederation's deputy in, superintendent of Fi- finance, where they he and Robert Morris, who was no relation to Governor Morris, they helped to. Uh, develop a financial program to save the public credit and really with it the revolution itself, um, just by helping to keep the, the troops supplied and in the field, just barely supplied and in the field. Um, I'll add one thing, a, a fun bit of trivia for listeners. You, you know this Lily, from reading the book, but He's, again, he's deputy superintendent of finance. He draws up a plan for a new national currency in which, among other things, he proposes to use the word dollar after the widely used Spanish dollar for the basic unit of currency. He invents the word cent to denote one of the smaller coins. So we use words chosen by Morris pretty much every day. He's the reason we, why we have dollars and cents as our uh, the, the term for our currency. Um in 1787, of course, he attends the Philadelphia Convention. I think much of our conversation is going to focus on that, so maybe I'll, I'll leave that out for now. Um, I will note, though, that he, a- after the convention's close, um, Alexander Hamilton, who's, a, as I said, a very good friend of him, his, asked him to contribute to the Federalist. So it was initially that the Federalist papers was initially supposed to be written by the trio of Hamilton, Morris, and John Jay, who are these three kind of up and coming New Yorkers and who are all good friends. Um, it was only after Morris turned him down, that Hamilton turned to James Madison, which makes Madison, in the words of, of one scholar, makes Madison the most consequential backup choice in the history of political theory. Um, as I, I say in the book, I think it's really fascinating to think how the Federalists might be different if we had papers from Morris rather than Madison. Um I think certainly Morris would be more, much more famous now than he is, um, had he written for it. But um, anyway, so he went on after this, um, after the Philadelphia Convention, he went to Europe. And so he became an important player and not just one, but two of the great revolutions of the modern age. He goes to Paris. He eventually follows in the footsteps of Franklin and Jefferson, becomes the American minister to France. Um, So he's there at the convening of the Estates General. He's, in fact, the only foreign diplomat from any country to stay uh, in the country all the way through the terror. Um, He's very skeptical of the French Revolution from the get-go, even before someone like, say, Edmund Burke, who is often noted for his prescience on this matter. Um, And I think a lot of his warnings were really Born out about the the chaos that would be um, unleashed during the, the war, um, and he did I think a fairly heroic job um, during this time in terms of um, navigating the the revolving door of factions that, that headed the French government, you know, each more violent and extreme than the last. He does what he can to you know protect American citizens from arbitrary arrest, uh, protect American commerce. Um, when things are at their worst, he hides people in his apartment from the guillotine, um, including his, his uh, at that time, former lover. Um, so he, he's in France during the, the heady days of the terror. Um, he travels around Europe for a little bit more, comes back to the U.S. in 1800, where he serves the second half of a senatorial term. So he's a, Senate, a federalist senator from New York um, from 1800 to 1803. This is, of course, when the Republicans... Take power. Jefferson sweeps into office. The Capitol moves to Washington, D.C. He then, in 1804, there's, of course, the famous duel between Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Morris is the one who sits by Hamilton at his deathbed, he sits by his side. He's the one who gives his official eulogy afterward. Um, Hamilton's widow, Eliza, says, Morris, you're the best friend he had in the world. And as I say in the book, not that this is enough to e- earn him even a bit role in the musical, right, which, uh, you know, is a real missed opportunity. Having this peg-legged rake for running, uh, you know, would have been great, Um so anyway, I'll say, I, I, I know I'm going on here. I'll, I'll just try to wrap it up. Late in life, he undertook two more kind of great projects. He helped to lead a commission that planned the, the grid layout of Manhattan, the city streets of Manhattan, and also one that planned the Erie Canal Um he also, during his very last years, as a sort of uh, elder statesman of the Federalist Party, he grew so disenchanted with the ascendancy of the Republicans and the War of 1812 that he supported disunion. He supported the secession of New England and New York from, from the Union, Um I guess I'll just leave it at that for now. On the more personal side of things, he finally, at age 57, he finally married. He was really the last of the founders to marry. He married a woman named Nancy Randolph, um, who was a sort of um, almost a fallen aristocrat uh, who was then serving as his housekeeper. She had earlier been accused of conspiring to murder her own newborn baby, fathered by her brother-in-law, which is a very long story I (laughs) won't tell, They had a son together, although Morris died before he even turned four. Um, I guess guess I'll say something about his death. Um, I don't know whether I should, but I think my 10-year-old son would be very disappointed if I didn't. His death, too, is very colorful, if rather grisly. Um, So he seems to have suffered frequently from um, painful blockages in his urinary tract, which might have been the result of venereal disease. And at one point, he's, I believe, 64, he tried using a whalebone from his wife's corset, from Nancy's corset, to clear the blockage, and it killed him. He, he died from the resulting laceration. So. I apologize to listeners. You know, good luck getting that image out of your mind. Um, but again, my my ten year old would be disappointed if I didn't at least tell that that story here.
2: Yeah, he he definitely had a, a sort of interesting life, particularly when we, you know, we think about how we often valorize the founders and think about them in this kind of you know they're very serious and and considering taking the country the colonies to war and and then of course at the constitution convention. Um, and he's much more in keeping with the Ben Franklin kind of um, founder who is also flippant and and acerbic. Um, and and has a very interesting life, um, and I I do want to move into the convention, um, and into uh, into sort of the role that he played, particularly with regard to like the establishment of the executive branch, um, and the electoral college. But I did want to it sort of right before that talk a little bit about Governor Morris and his his sort of understanding of. Finances and nationalism. Because I think that you talk about this, and this also seems to be how he. Was thinking about, um, and he had this role in being sort of the uh, deputy treasurer of the the Continental um, Congress, and during the Revolutionary period, that this really was important in his thinking about the new form of government that would replace the Articles of Confederation. Can you talk just a little bit more about his, you know, the sort of way that he comes at? National finances.
3: Sure, and because Morris is um, more uh, pro-commerce, if you want to put it that way, than almost any of the founders, he, he's very much in line with Hamilton on this, where he thinks commerce and finance is. Uh, key part of underpinning a strong, growing, flourishing nation. Um, He tells John Jay in a letter while he's deputy superintendent of finance, that uh, something like finance, that's where the revolution grounds. That's what we need to win this war, right? They need to keep the troops supplied in the field. And so, yeah, he really sees building a a solid financial program as as key to to making the nation itself stronger. And this leads to, I omitted in my, my little kind of brief biography there one of the um real uh, kind of shameful <laughs> episodes i think in in um morris's life is while he's deputy deputy superintendent of finance he's you know, disappointed that the Confederation's powers aren't being augmented in the way that he and Hamilton and others wanted. And so he and Robert Morris and Hamilton all play some kind of role. It's very unclear, but some kind of shadowy role in what was known as the the Newburgh conspiracy, which is, you know, disgruntled army officers, you know, disappointed in not getting their pay. And he sort of suggests in a letter at one point, you know, maybe they should, you know, march on the Capitol. They have, they have swords in their hands and they should use them. And I don't think they're Really looking for a military coup or anything like that, but it's still, you know, it's the height of imprudence, of course, to want to use a disgruntled military to force, uh, you know, the government's hand. This is one time when, fortunately, his hero Washington uh, kind of um, nips the the conspiracy in the bud. That, yeah, I'm sure most listeners will know this: the famous scene where he he's talking to the officers and he dons his spectacles and everybody's reduced to tears, and you know, through this this dramatic moment, he he quells the 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 sort of um, discontent or the uprising. But yeah, no, Morris really wanted from the get go a much stronger national government, national power than almost anyone in America did at the time of the revolution or during the the early years of the confederation. And so, yes, part part of his role as a finance minister was using that role to to build up the national government more generally.
2: So, and and again, this is a lot of what we understand about Hamilton's role in the new, the new republic after the constitution was established as well as the first secretary of the treasury. But Morris comes into the constitutional convention with a lot of these ideas at play. Um, And so, he gets to the constitutional convention as you note he's a representative from new york um he's had all
3: well, let me just jump in he's a representative from pennsylvania That's so he's I from thought. new york but he, he moved to philadelphia he lived there for seven years so he represents philadelphia at the constitutional or, uh, convention at the convention yes
2: yeah. and and that was i was i i read that in the book and then i was like wait it that He's from New York, yeah. but he's representing <laughs> Philadelphia, whatever. Um, right. So he is representing Pennsylvania, which is, again, a, a very important state in, in the sort of early founding period um, for its size and so forth. Um, but he he comes into the in, into the Constitutional Convention and he has seen that, like like so many, that the Articles of Confederation are not strong. But. Um, And and that he plays a role, as you talk about, he's the Constitution's penman in that ultimately he has an important role in the actual drafting of the document itself in the way that we see it today. Um, But that he comes into the Constitutional Convention and he has a very active role throughout the summer. Um, In 1787. Um, And you note that he won far more arguments than Madison did. Um, So what is it that that Morris comes in sort of wanting or lending his um, ideas to in terms of the shape of the new constitution?
3: Yes, yeah, so what he wants is a much stronger national government than they had under the Articles of Confederation. He wants a much stronger executive. He and James Wilson are the two chief architects of the American presidency, as we know it. Um, he wants to combat slavery, that too, I think we should talk more about. But let me just say as a more general matter first, you know, I think he's arguably the single most dominant figure at the Philadelphia convention. So Morris spoke more often at the convention than anyone else did. He proposed more motions than anyone else did. He had more motions accepted than anyone else did, despite being gone for the entire month of June. he's. his speeches, his interventions are very blunt, very provocative. I find when you read Madison's notes, they just kind of leap off the page at you. You you, you kind of sit up and pay attention when Morris speaks in a way that you don't always for for the other delegates. Um, he serves on a lot of committees. He's just everywhere that summer, um, and and most importantly of all, as as you note. You know, he's the one who writes the Constitution itself, right? So at the end of the summer, the delegates form a five-person committee of style, was sometimes called the committee of style, to write the final draft of the Constitution. And they basically hand it over to Morris um, for, for him to write it. And it's unbelievable to me that so few people know this, right? Everybody knows. Most American school children can tell you who wrote the Declaration of Independence. We all know it's Thomas Jefferson, right? Very few people, I think, could tell you that Governor Morris is who wrote the Constitution. Um, I don't know. I I bet if you did a Poll of PhDs in political science. I don't know what the what the number would be, but I'm not. I don't think it's over half. Is my guess right? Um, I've never done such a poll, but I asked many, many people this question over the course of, of writing the book. And you know, most people assume, well, wow, well, maybe it was Madison, right? He's the father of the Constitution, or it's just a collective effort. And I guess in some ways it is, of course, right. The the provisions of the Constitution have been very laboriously debated on, voted on over the course of the summer. So it's not like he could sit down and choose. The The structure or the powers of the government or whatever, but I still think he wrote the Constitution every bit as much as Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, right? They're they're both group efforts, but he, you know, Morris single-handedly and really Uh, kind of radically reorganized the whole thing we had there was a draft committee or a draft constitution written by what was known as the committee of detail midway through the summer had these 23 sprawling articles he condenses them down to seven um he changed a lot of the wording or chose a lot of the wording himself oftentimes in, in in very consequential ways and so it's you know when when We pour over when constitutional lawyers and scholars and people pour over the fine details of the constitution, right? Why this word here or that semicolon there, whatever. When we're looking for clues regarding its meaning, you know, we have Morris to thank or to blame for for a lot of these details. Um, He also wrote the preamble, the famous preamble, the, the ringing statement of purpose basically from scratch, right? So all the stuff about forming a more perfect union, established justice, enduring, ensuring domestic tranquility, all that, that's all Morris, right? Um, as I say in the book, it's sort of ironic that the preamble has become one of the most celebrated sentences in the, the annals of democracy. And so it's ironic that it's written by a man of somewhat elitist inclinations who's all but forgotten today. It's uh, um, There's a strange disconnect there. But anyway, the, the point is, Morris was certainly more than anyone else the author of the Constitution. This is the charter by which Americans still live. This is one of the most important texts in world history. Um, You brought up Madison as the, the, you know, father of the constitution, it's maybe a sort of silly debate, but I, you know, I think he deserves that role. Maybe that is to say Morris deserves that title of of father of the constitution, at least as much as Madison does. Um, it's not just me who thinks this or the handful of Morris fans or experts out there who think this, Joseph Ellis, who's maybe the most popular writer on, on the founder today says this as well, a couple of times in a couple of different books, um, now, partly that's because I think Madison maybe doesn't deserve that title as much as we sometimes think. He does, I mean, he's very important, right? He helps to get the convention called. He um, helps to write the Virginia plan. He's, he's very important. His notes, you know, writing of the Federalist, he does lots of important things. But, you know, he's very, Madison is at the end of the convention, very disappointed in the constitution that was written. I think we discussed this in our last conversation about my, my previous book. Um, so at the convention itself, Morris contributes more to the debates than madison does he's more successful in getting his proposals passed than madison is and again he's the one that writes the constitution itself and so um yeah, I mean, it's not bad for someone whose name most Americans wouldn't even recognize. I and
2: and, and I agree with you that most Americans wouldn't recognize Gov- Governor Morris's name, Governor Morris. I still never sure. And and you talk about the pronunciation issue in the book, and I'm like, okay, you tell me how to say it. Um, and and so and it was his mother's maiden name, right? That. Correct. So that's where it, his name. Came so from.
3: his mother's name is Sarah G- G- Governor Gouverneur. Um, so she has Huguenot heritage. So it's, it's from the French. It seems not to have been pronounced like the French. So um, the, I, I just uh, not that I spoke to him, but one of his biogra- one of Morris's biographers spoke to one of his long descendants, and and he claimed that it was anglicized to just Governor. Um, Abigail Adams tended to smell often spell names phonetically, and she rendered it "governor." Um, I just say "governor" because I guess it's easiest. I don't know. I don't know if there's one right way to say it. Well,
2: I'll go. I'll go with you since you're the Governor Morris <laughs> the expert at this point. There, there we go. Um, but one of the things that I found really interesting is that he had he had a pretty radical from what we ended up with idea for the US Senate. Um, And, and so in terms of we'll get to the presidency, because that looks a lot more like sort of where we ended up, but he wanted a different kind of setup for the Senate. And he was very skeptical about both the Senate and the House. Can you talk about what he wanted? And how that was hmm, kind of different than what we got? Yes. (laughs)
3: Um, So his vision of the Senate is very different than what we ended up with. His reasons for wanting it are also very counterintuitive. Um, So the the basic vision he has, and he, he lays this out in a long and I think pretty audacious speech he gives on July 2nd at the convention, he argues essentially that the Senate should be made up of exclusively wealthy individuals who are chosen by the president to serve for life without pay. Um, So he wants it to be an explicitly aristocratic body. And strangely, he thinks that this is going to serve to check the political power of the rich. So why would that be? Um, Well, first of all, he he begins by talking about, well, what's the purpose of the Senate? He says the purpose of the Senate, right, because we don't have an aristocracy in America. We don't need a House of Lords like in Britain. Um, But he says that the role of the Senate should be to check the sort of what he expects to be the turbulent populism of the House of Representatives, the the changeableness, the excesses against property and, and so forth. And he thinks that this kind of Senate that he's envisioned would play, would be in the best position to play this role that, well, if they're rich, then they have every incentive to guard against inroads against private property by, by these, again, who he assumes is going to be the populists making up the house. Their lifetime appointments will give them the independence, the security to, to stand up to them. Um, and so this, you know, he, he expects the rich to be power hungry and corrupt, but he thinks that they're Corruption should be set against the the kind of different vices that are going to make up the House of Representatives. Um, Now, this is I guess I should say this is something that a surprisingly large number of delegates at the convention advocated is um, making the Senate into this kind of quasi-aristocratic body, maybe even with life terms. But his reason, Morris's reasoning, is different than most of them. Most of the the framers who wanted a, a aristocratic Senate wanted it because they trusted wealthy elites more than the common people who they thought were ignorant and vicious. Morris wants this because he doesn't trust them, right? He, he thinks that, again, the rich are generally corrupt and power hungry. They're too e- all too eager to oppress the poor. And so, it se- again, it seems weird that he wants to basically hand the Senate over to these corrupt people, But he thinks that somehow the Senate, these these elites are going to be easier to restrain if they're, he envisions it as almost they're being isolated, confined to the Senate, where the people and and the people's representatives in the House can watch them like a hawk, right? Scrutinize their every move, be ready to resist any oppressive measures that they tried to pass. And so he's trying to find a way to pit ambition against ambition, to use Madison's famous dictum from Federalist 51. Um, This is actually very similar to, I don't know if he takes it, for sure, but from John Adams, but it's very similar to what John Adams advocates sort of on the state level, where if you confine the rich, the well-born to a, a, a Senate or an upper chamber, he, Adams even describes it as a form of ostracism, um, that you're ostracizing the rich to this, um, this body. And it's not, look, I... I, I I think Morris's vision of the Senate has its problems. I, I lay them out in the book. The, the book isn't just defending everything Morris says. I, I think that this is very problematic in a lot of ways. I guess I'll just say in his defense, what's he trying to do? He's trying to find – he's groping for a way to find a a, 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 um, a way to limit the inordinate influence of the rich on the political process – and as I say in the book, I think that's a problem we still haven't solved adequately today. Um, and so he recognizes, I think, more than anyone else that this is going to be a problem. I don't think his solution is a particularly good one, but at least he has the foresight uh, and, and the realism to see the way the, the rich are going to try to dominate the political process.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready Ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two-minute meals factor meals are ready to eat and heat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed slash nbn 50 to get 50%
0: off.
2: And he's rich. Like so he knows he knows of what he's talking about here in terms of the people that he generally associates with and does business with and has come across throughout his life. So he's it's it's not it's not sort of a an idealized idea in terms of his coming at this to the, to the Senate. Um, So let's get into the executive. Um, His fingerprints are all over the actual presidency that we have. Um, And, you know, Hamilton is known for his influence. And you talk about Governor Morris as well um, and Wilson. Um, And so what did Morris come into the convention wanting Uh, from that kind of an office because Madison sort of was interested in something to this effect as well Um, but Morris had, had more clear ideas about it.
3: Yes, right. So Morris wants to empower the presidency um, to make it a true co-equal branch, one that can stand up to and check the House. Um, He was, you know, Hamilton becomes very crucial later in terms of defending the presidency in the Federalist and then as Pacificus and so forth. At the convention itself, I think it's really Morris and Wilson who are the two chief architects of the presidency as we know it. Um, So let me maybe start with the the issue of presidential selection. So how is the president going to be chosen in Because this is a really contentious issue. They, the, the delegates wrangle over this probably more than anything else that summer, except for the basis of representation in the Senate, right? The equal versus proportional representation in the Senate. Um, but the, the dominant view going in, I don't think many people today realize just how close the convention came to having Congress choose the president, um, which would, of course, go a long way to making the American system, a parliamentary rather than presidential one, to use contemporary terms, right? Um, But for basically the entire summer, all but a couple weeks of the summer, the plan on the table included congressional selection of the president. And that's, I I mean, we would have almost certainly ended up with that if it had not been for Morris and Wilson, constantly objecting to it. So Morris's main objections to this, to, to congressional selection, were first that the outcome would be determined by sort of partisan infighting or factional infighting. He said it would be like the election of a pope by a conclave of cardinals, right, where the, there's a constant infighting to, to uh, choose who the president's going to be. And second, and I think even more importantly, he thought that congressional selection would just render the president subservient to Congress, right? The, the president would be all too willing to do whatever Congress wanted in order to be reelected or reappointed, and this would just undermine the system of checks and balances. And so what he wanted instead, like Wilson, what he wanted instead was just a direct popular election of the president. Um, This really had no chance of passing. You know, most of the other delegates found this idea to be utterly preposterous. Um, And so as an alternative, the two of them, again, Morris and Wilson, were the two main ones to devise the electoral college that we have today as the closest kind of approximation that they could get to a popular election. And this solved, using the elector solved a number of problems with regard to the small states and especially the slave states that maybe you know it would take us too far afield to get into. Um, but again, I'll just reiterate, <clears throat> Morris is one of the two main architects of the electoral college. He himself though, regarded it as a second best option. He would have preferred a direct vote by the people themselves. He also does everything that he can in the debates, in the various committees, as the author of the final draft, to try to enhance the president's powers. He wants the president to be, presidency to be as almost as powerful as he can make it. Um, he would have liked it to be even more powerful than it was. He wanted, um, almost, in, in particular, almost unbelievably expansive appointment powers. So he thought that the president should be able to appoint cabinet officers federal judges and, and Supreme Court justices, and remember, even senators unilaterally without congressional approval, so that the president would choose basically all members of the government other than the the House of Representatives. Um, he, um, I guess, in terms of the, what's in back of all this, why does he want the presidency to be so powerful? Um, The two general reasons are, again, he wanted the presidency to be powerful enough to stand up to Congress, which he thought would be the most powerful and and dangerous of the three branches, and remember to be dominated by these wealthy elites and and so forth. So he wants the presidency to be powerful enough to stand up to Congress. He also wants the presidency to be powerful because he knows, as everyone knows, is a foregone conclusion that the first president is going to be his friend and hero, George Washington. Um, So... You know, he didn't. His his vision of the presidency is much closer to what we have than his vision of of Congress. Um, but you know, even there, he didn't quite get everything he wanted.
2: And and so he does come in, you know, with this expansive vision of, as you note, the the executive power. Um, but he also has um, misgivings with regard to how much power the states continue to have under the new constitution, which is, you know, something that we don't necessarily hear a lot about because, you know, this is our federal system and there's an allocation of power at multiple levels. Um, And, you know, we've heard recently people talking about the 10th amendment in uh, I think presidential debates um, here in Wisconsin a couple weeks ago. Um, So can you explain what Morris was concerned about with regard to, you know, how much power the states would retain under the new constitution.
3: Absolutely. So, right. Remember just at this time, the states are still under the articles of the confederation, the states are still the real sovereign powers in America. Um, this, which is something Morris really thinks to be, should be changed. He, he deems the state governments to be deeply problematic like Madison because of their own internal problems, that is to say, especially their tendency to allow majorities to tyrannize too easily over minorities, also because they so frequently stand in the way of the national interest. And so he's really one of the leaders of what you might call the nationalist camp at the convention. Nationalists, of course, not meaning Sort of America first in the the international arena, but rather in the sense of wanting to centralize power, right? Put more power in the national government at the expense of the states. Um, he's not the most extreme nationalist. There are people like Hamilton who would have basically wiped the states off the map if they could have um, uh, altogether. I don't think Morris would have gone quite that far. But I su- suggest in the book he's maybe the most passionate nationalist. He's constantly saying, you know. We're not here to truck and barter for our particular states. We shouldn't think of ourselves as, you know, Virginians or, you know, South Carolinians or whatever. We should think of ourselves as representatives of America. at one time he stands up and he says something like, or he asks something like, well, if all the laws, all the constitutions of the states are thrown into the fire, all the demagogues are thrown into the ocean, who cares? What would it be to the happiness of America? Which is, you know, <laughs> I think probably raised more than a few, few eyebrows, right? Um, and so this is, um, yeah, so he, he's very a, a very passionate nationalist. Um, now I suggest in the book, he's, he's, right, he's originally from New York. He would return there after his European travels. He had been living in Philadelphia for, I think, seven years or so by this point. So he serves as a delegate from Pennsylvania. He's a sort of transplant. So, of course, th- this helps to give him this broad-minded cosmopolitan outlook. He's also, again, he's rich. He has these very far-flung business adventures. He's a bachelor still at this point. He's just, you know, far more geographically mobile than than most of them are. Um, but it is still, you know, I do think... Um, Probably the convention would have proceeded more smoothly, at least, if more delegates had brought, uh, taken his broad-minded, cosmopolitan outlook, right, to rise above the local considerations, the, the, the sectional jealousies and the like.
2: And so speaking of sectional jealousies, <laughs> um, Morris was one of the most um, articulate uh, founders at the time willing to take on slavery, um, and and finding this really anathema to the new republic and to the constitutional system. Can you explain how he came to his, you know, his position at this point in you know the late 1780s when abolition wasn't necessarily on the tip of everybody's tongue? Um, and and, you know, what what he was talking about at the convention with regard to it?
3: Sure. So he's, of course, a northerner, but he comes from a slaveholding family. So his father owned or or held in bondage several dozen people when Morris was a child. His mother still enslaved three people when she died the year before the convention in 1786. Um, But he, you know, we don't really know how, but he comes to his anti-slavery views quite early. Um, He fights against it at the New York State Constitutional Convention in 1777. This is he's only 25 years old. Slavery is still legal and practice in all 13 states. But he, you know, very much urges his fellow members of the provincial Congress to, to outlaw slavery in New York. Um, so he, you know, he's as a very young man, just sees its its evils in a way that you know uh, many didn't of course um, he but at the convention uh, this is really his finest hour at the convention from I think from today's perspective he speaks more passionately and eloquently and at greater length about the evils of slavery than anyone else he calls it a nefarious constitution the curse of heaven on the states where it prevailed um, he gives this long speech, and I, I include the speech in the appendix to, to the book, uh, which has been called the first abolitionist speech in American public life. Um, that's probably an exaggeration, but there's there's some truth through it, um, which is all the more remarkable given the context, right? Think of who his audience is. There's probably a couple dozen people sitting there in the room who are themselves slaveholders. Um, so he gives this speech in opposition to the three-fifths clause, right, to counting three-fifths of the enslaved population toward representation in the House, and thus also at least eventually in the Electoral College, right, and his basic point is why are we counting enslaved people toward representation, right, so he, he sort of rhetorically asks, are these people, are enslaved people men? Well, if they are, then we should make them citizens and let them vote. If they're not, if they're just property, then why are they included? No other property included, right? And so the three-fifths clause, he thinks, is just a way of augmenting the political power of the slave-holding South, one that would encourage them to import still more enslaved people so that their political clout would be still more uh, or further increased. Um, so I pulled it up here. Let me just read the sort of climax of his speech, which I think is really worth reading. This is, a, again, in opposition to three-fifths clause. So Morris says this, quote, The admission of slaves into the representation, when fairly explained, comes to this, that the inhabitant of Georgia or South Carolina who goes to the coast of Africa and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections and damns them to the most cruel bondage shall have more votes in a government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than the citizen of Pennsylvania or New Jersey who views with laudable horror so nefarious a practice. And then he goes on to say that giving the South this kind of extra... Clout, extra representation on behalf of the people whom they've enslaved, would require, quote, a sacrifice of every principle of right, of every impulse of humanity, right? So this is, uh, you know, as clear-sighted as you could be on on this issue. He, of course, fails to make much headway. You know, he, he doesn't succeed, right? That the three-fifths clause is included, the, the clause protecting the overseas slave trade until 1808 is included, the fugitive slave clause is included um, in the Constitution over his, his objections. So I suggest you know he's sort of the framers' conscience on this issue, but as too often happens, the conscience is ignored. Um, let me just also add though, you know, I of course this whole issue makes Morris look really good. I do think though it also makes the other founders look worse by comparison, in the sense that you know historians are always saying, well, it's unfair to judge figures of the past on the basis of today's values and the like." Um, which I guess is true to a certain extent, but this this speech of Morris's makes it harder for me to accept the idea that, oh, the poor founders, as mere creatures of their time, they couldn't possibly have known any better with regard to slavery, right? Morris is one of them, and he knew better, and he told them so, right? Um, so, yeah, th- this is really, the, the, the in some ways, the, the finest hour of Morris at the, the convention.
2: Even his good friend and his hero, George Washington. <laughs>
3: Sure, of course,
2: and yeah. you know, as as we all talk about the the, the sort of complexity of Jefferson, shall we say? Um, so I I wanted to ask you this question because um, the whole time I was in graduate school, we had a running joke when we were talking about the Federalists and Hamilton that Hamilton was a monarchist. Um, what about Morris?
3: <laughs> I think no. So, so there are reasons to wonder if Hamilton was a, a, a monarchist in the sense that his his infamous speech at the Constitutional Convention, he's you know praises British monarchy. He says that the the king is a good institution. He says, of course, we can't do this in America, but the president should serve for life. Um, And, you know, meaning George Washington should serve for life once elected and and, um, have these very expansive powers. And so many people, he always said, he wasn't in Hamilton, that is, always said he's not an advocate of monarchy, because he never advocated anything hereditary, um, right? It was always the people choose. Washington before he then serves for life. Um, But, you know, you could be forgiven for thinking, well, this is just sort of monarchy in sheep's clothing, right? That this is a... a, a, I think Morris, no, right? So he does want to build up the presidency for the reasons I suggested. He wants it to be a check on Congress, and he does very much trust Washington. But he does... um, He wants it to be, uh, you know... A key cog in this machine, this machine of checks and balances, he does seem to be in America, right? He does seem to think that the king plays a reasonably important role in the French context, right? He, he comments quite a lot on French politics because he's the American minister to France. There, he does defend the idea of a, a hereditary um, senate uh, or body of nobles in in the French context, just because that was such a part integral part of their their tradition, but. You know, in terms of w- was he a monarchist in America? I think no.
2: All right, I'll take I'll take your word for it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the one of the other points that you make with regard to his vision for the Constitution had to do with the judiciary, and that there was one particular issue that he really wanted written into the Constitution that wasn't written into the Constitution: judicial review. Um, can you talk about? How His vision for the role of the judiciary, I mean, again, it goes to this, like, what's the check against the House or the sort of chaotic populism that we might see there. Um, But why did he want that actually in the Constitution?
3: Yeah, so he does, a lot of this frankly rests on inference. He doesn't speak about the judiciary nearly as much as the, you know, he talks about the executive, about slavery, about the the structure of Congress, you know, many, many times on many, many days, because they spend a lot of time debating this. The judiciary is almost, one scholar called it the the taken for granted stepchild of 1787. You know, the delegates just spend a lot less time talking about that. And that's true of Morris too. But he does want to make it a true co-equal branch. So one of the things he does in the course of writing the Constitution is, as I said, suggested, he pairs down what had been 23 articles in the Committee of Details draft Constitution down to seven. And in particular, he gives us the sort of tripartite structure that we know today, where Article One is on Congress, Article Two is on the presidency, Article Three is on the judiciary. And this was very unusual in all of the previous drafts of the Constitution there were many many articles on the Congress and only one or two on the executive and the judiciary this is true of also of all the state constitutions they have many many articles devoted to, to the uh, the representative branch the legislature but not nearly as many to the executive or judiciary and lay, laying it out the way he did with the, the three uh, articles on the three branches I think was meant to suggest as it really does very clearly to the reader, that these are three branches. They're co-equal branches. They should be there, you know, seen as equals and there to check one another. Um, And so he tries to build up the judiciary. He wants there to be a full system of federal courts in addition to the Supreme Court, which some of the more state-minded delegates were against. Um, He wanted them to have the power of judicial review. Again, he doesn't speak at length about this at all, but a couple of times offhandedly, he says that they should have the power of judicial review, um, mostly because I think... He thought they would need this power to keep Congress in check and also, I think, especially the state governments in check, right, to going back to his his nationalism or his, his um, opposition to the state governments, that the Power Judicial Review to, would help, help to keep what he saw as two of the more um, dangerous uh, kind of um, entities within the, the government in check, namely Congress, which he worries is going to be dominated by by power hungry elites and then the the state governments which he thought were too too subject to majority faction.
2: And and so
3: I loved reading this book, Dennis.
2: I it 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 leaps off the page. It's clear that you have had a good time not only researching Governor Morris, but also writing about him. And I recommend this to anybody who's just a little bit curious, but it it just it reads it's propulsive, which is so Strange to say about you know a founder's biography as it were um but i I really really enjoyed it so my question for you is what are you working on now that you've done this
3: well um i have an idea that i'm toying with but i'm not sure i'm it's to the point yet where i'm ready to to speak about it publicly or or sort of for posterity so i i guess i'm afraid i'm going to say you know to be determined still at this point. But thank you very much for the kind words about the this book. I, I As you suggest, and I'm glad it comes across uh, on the page, I had a great time spending <laughs> these years with, with Morris. He's a super fun guy, super colorful, charismatic guy. Um, it is wild that he's so... I mean, I'm stealing a line from a guy named Bill Trainer, who's the, the Dean of Georgetown Law and has also written a lot on Morris. He's, he's an excellent Morris scholar. Um, so I'm stealing his line, but it's amazing that he's so forgotten when he's he's so unforgettable, that, that he's, he's so little known when he's such a, a colorful and interesting and impactful uh, figure.
2: Well, I, I look forward to reading whatever it is that you write next. If if it's continuing to be embargoed, that's fine. Um, <laughs> and, and so I will invite you back whenever you produce your next book. Terrific. Um, I can't wait. So I want to thank you, Dennis Rasmussen, for talking to me today about The Constitution's Penman. Governor Morris and the Creation of America's Basic Charter. Um, This is published by the University Press of Kansas in 2023 and is available at the University Press of Kansas's website. Um, Is there a brick-and-mortar store to which you want to give a shout-out?
3: No, I often order through Better World Books when I order online, but no no brick-and-mortar one.
2: All right. Thank you for joining me today, Dennis.
3: Thank you for having me, Lily. It was a pleasure.
0: 18- plus.